Hi everyone, we hope you're enjoying our new season on B-Magic. Before we get started on today's episode, we want to let you know about a special event we have coming up. The first ever Elixir Wizards Conference is this June 16th and 17th. All online, two afternoons, a mix of talks, panels, and of course, the hallway track. As a podcast listener, you can get a discounted ticket by going to smr.tl slash conf podcast. We'll put that link in the show notes. Hope to see you then. Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Epen, and I'll be your host today. I'm joined by my ray of sunshine co-host, Sunday Mint. Hello. Hey, Sunday. And my erudite producer, Eric Ostrich. Hello. This season's theme is Beam Magic, and we're joined today by special guest Christopher Miller. Hello. So, Chris, I heard you just moved to Providence. Is that true? Yes, yes. Just recently moved to Providence. Yep. Providence, Rhode Island? Indeed. Not New York. Providence, Rhode Island, not Long Island. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. How's it going? How are you liking it so far? It's pretty cool. I just bought a house. I'm a first-time homeowner, figuring out all those things. Rhode Island smells like the ocean, so I'm kind of fitting in here. It's really nice. Awesome. Yeah, I used to live in Boston, and I had clients. I had to travel out to Providence to meet. It's a really nice little town, city. Congrats on buying a house. Thank you. I'm actually originally from Baltimore, so my mom's back at home chilling uh, where you all are. <laughs> well, yeah, Smart Logic is based out of Baltimore. We're all remote nowadays, though. I'm north of Baltimore in a town called Bel Air, Sunday. I'm in D.C., right off of Rock Creek Park. And Eric, you're in a totally different state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. 550 miles away <laughs> in Indianapolis, so... <laughs> So we're all over, coming from all over to bring you Elixir Wizards. I wanted to jump off this episode by asking about your Twitter handle. Could you tell us what your Twitter handle is and why you chose that to be your handle? All right. So my Twitter handle is Black Euler, and I picked that when I graduated high school. And essentially, I was really into math, and I was learning about different math things. I've learned about this mathematician named Leonard Euler, and he's really interesting, not only because his birthday is the day before mine, but because he's one of the few mathematicians that have contributed to almost every area of mathematics. So algebra, number theory, analysis, even physics. He's done some things with like I stuff and even music theory. So I was thinking, you know, if I had to be someone when I grew up, I would love to be someone that's like, you know, into everything because that's kind of what he was about. So this was just out of high school? Yeah, I like literally graduated high school and two days after I made a Twitter and Instagram with that handle, had it ever since. That's amazing. So you have always been into math. That wasn't just a recent thing. Yes, always been into math ever since middle and high school. My dad got his bachelor's degree from Carleton College in mathematics. And when I was younger, he would be teaching me like how to do uh, linear equations and systems of equations on like pieces of paper. That's what I do for fun. I got my degree in mathematics and now I'm trying to apply mathematics to programming. Can you speak more to that? Because actually that is something that's come up maybe a few times on the show, this relationship between math and programming, but you are pointedly trying to do it. So do you have any thoughts on that off the top of your head? Yeah. So I, I think when I first got into programming, 
well, the second time I got into programming, I should say, I was trying to like understand how do I go about solving these problems in a methodical way. And everyone told me, well, you just kind of find the answer and it's there. But now I've found these really cool things in programming language theory and type theory where you can utilize a type system to actually write programs for you. And it has to do with this thing called the Curry-Howard isomorphism. And it essentially says that your types in your programming language is the same thing as propositions and mathematics. And the programs in your programming language is the same thing as proofs and mathematics. So when you prove something in math, you're essentially writing a function in some programming language. And when you like state some statement or some proposition, you're essentially writing a type spec in some programming language. And you can utilize this Curry-Howard isomorphism to go back and forth between mathematics and programming. And you can pull in all the power and hundreds of years of mathematics into your programs. So that's what languages like Haskell with monads and monoids try to do. But I'm trying to figure out how to pull in the math process into the I guess not just the actual programming, but like how you go about solving problems. What do you mean you're trying to pull the, the math into the, like the problem solving process? In mathematics, you have like a couple of ways you can go about proving propositions and statements. There's like inductive proofs. There are contradictive proofs. And there are all these different ways of constructing the right shape of answer for a given proof. And it's kind of very easy to a degree. It's like, if you want to prove something by contradiction, well, you have to take the statement you're trying to prove it and make a converse of that, like an opposite of that and prove that that's true. And then now you've proved something by contradiction. So anything you're trying to prove by contradiction, is like get an opposite of it and then try to prove that that statement is true, which is can't be true. And there are several problem solving things like that in math that I wish were in programming. Like if you are trying to take a list of things and collapse them down to, to some value, that would probably be a reduce or a fold. That's related to monoids, this algebraic structure that exists. And a monoid must exist when you do a fold, if it works properly. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to find the weird intersection between programming and math and problem solving and utilizing some of like the well-established ways that we go about tackling proofs to teach people how to go about tackling algorithmic challenges or programming problems. Do you know Brooklyn Zelenka? Zelenka? The name does not sound familiar. <laughs> she was big in the Elixir community. I think she's writing some other language right now, Haskell. What is it, Eric, you would know? I think she's mostly in Haskell now. She's like right up your alley as well. <laughs> yeah, you two would have a lot to talk about. You mentioned this word monoid a couple times, and I've heard the word monad. And actually, when we had Brooklyn on the show, she gave us a great, great crash course on monads. But I would love to hear it again if they are related. Yes. So a monad is a monoid in the category of endofunctors. And that's like a buzzword that you hear in the household community a lot. But essentially, all it means is that you have a... Well, I'll start with a monoid. I'll define what a monoid is first. A, a monoid is an algebra. Uh, algebra is just a collection of things and some operation on those things. Okay. A monoid is some collection with an element that I'll call an identity element and an operation that is associative. 
N when you apply the identity element with this operation to any other element in your collection, you get back the other element. So for example, addition and natural numbers. So zero would be the identity element. Addition is the operation. It's associative. And when you add zero to any other number, you get back the other number. Oh boy. Oh boy. We might just have to go totally off the rails here. You mentioned the word endofunctor, and then you said, is that the hot, the buzzword that you were talking about? No, that, the whole entire saying is the buzzword. A monad is a monoid in the category of endofunctors. That, that whole thing is like a buzz. And it's often said in response to people asking what a monad, monad is, and it's said as like, oh, it's so simple, but it's, it can, it is simple, but it has to be unrolled. I'm sorry. I do have to say that I am actually following you for the most part, and I wasn't expecting to. So clearly, you must be a good teacher. You have a voice that kind of makes it easier to understand. So do you enjoy teaching math? Because you have a YouTube channel, right? I do enjoy teaching. I've been doing it for as long as I can remember. Uh, I've been tutoring since like middle school. I tutor calc all through college. Right now, one of my big things is teaching people how to code. So literally, like if someone says, oh, I want to go into tech, I want to do this. It was like, all right, how can I help you? And I'll just be teaching them programming and everything. I will say that I have an unfair advantage about the topic of monoids and monads and functors because I have a math degree. So it's a little less esoteric. But one thing I've noticed when people do talk about math is, I don't know, they don't bring in fun examples. You know, for example, like when you talk about functions and ranges and domains, none of that stuff makes sense. It's like a bunch of words. But if you start talking. Wait, wait. Functions, ranges? And domains. Yeah, the range of a function. And domains. Domain okay. of a function. For someone that doesn't really know anything about math and you bring up these terms to talk about other things, it's like, I don't know what you're saying. One thing I did in college, though, when I was teaching just basic calculus is I got a trash can out. And I bought up some pieces of paper and I was like, okay, the domain of a function is all the pieces of paper we have to throw into that trash can. The range of a function is all of the pieces of paper that we have thrown and actually lands in the trash can. The function is going to be you, the student, throwing paper into the trash can. So the range is the paper. The domain is all the ones that you throw. So the domain is like all the possible inputs and the range is all of the actual inputs? It's all the mappings. So the range is actually the paper that gets thrown into the trash can. Okay. So it's it's where where the function sends your domain. Okay. You can talk in the physical world about these things and not in terms of numbers because everyone says that math is about numbers, but in fact, math is not about numbers. It's a lot of words. We had an, an earlier episode where we, we said that math is... We're talking, the difference is arithmetic and it's a logic solving, it's logic, it's problem solving, is math is really more problem solving. So it's interesting that you say like no one ever uses like the fun examples. I am very more aware now than I was in school, for example, that there are fun examples in math. It's just when you're studying for a calc exam and everything is numbers and uh, it's just, there's so much stress there. If, if somebody could have made it fun, I think it would have been better for me. <laughs> absolutely and that's kind of like sort of what the youtube channel is about that's a great segue talk about your youtube channel 
Oh, right. <laughs> uh, so my YouTube channel, Coding Cave, it's not just mine, I should say, but I, I do it alongside with one of my friends from college, Andre. And we kind of started it because we were talking late one night for about two hours about how do you get into the coding industry? You should go to boot camp, you should get a degree. And our girlfriends were like, you guys should just start a YouTube channel. And then we gave it more thought and was like, wow, there's not a lot of like black YouTubers talking about software stuff. Maybe we should do this. And then we did. So the first video that we came out with was about like the abstraction of computation. And we we're just trying to make, talk about something interesting that's fun and kind of easy to understand with like good examples. So that's kind of that came out of and took a long hiatus and was like, we should start making like more relevant hands-on things. So we start taking looks at Elixir, made some Haskell videos and we've done a lot of Elm. So we're just trying to teach people how to code and also have fun and show people that there are black software engineers do exist. <laughs> well, and you recently knocked it out of the park with an interview with Jose Valin. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Our channel and context for another YouTube channel, we just decided to collab and do this interview with Jose and got to ask an actual like language creator some questions. It's really fun to do. What was one of your biggest takeaways or a question that you maybe had that you got answered on that interview? You know, he's a normal person. I don't know. I've, I've seen some interviews. with. <laughs> he's an extraordinary person. <laughs> he's done something extraordinary with Elixir. But at the end of the day, like he was just talking to us, just, just like a normal person. And he started this project. And it was just, it was funny talking to him about the project he started. And the project that he started just happens to be the language I use for work. <laughs> it's, it's, it, at the end of the day, it was a project that he started. He had a very specific idea and he just built it. And I think that was like the biggest takeaway for me is that anyone can go out and like build a program language, for instance, if they really have the inspiration and the drive. Very cool. Yeah, we love Jose. We can't wait to have him back on the show someday. So I want to ask like a fun question here. Putting aside Fisher Price text editors from certain evil corporate giants, what's the best text editor, Vim or Emacs? And why is it Vim? Well, Vim is my father's text editor. <laughs> I actually just recently got into the, the code editor wars, maybe within the past like year or so. Before then, I didn't have opinions and I just used VS Code because I didn't know any better. And then someone showed me the, the power of Emacs at a Haskell meetup in New York. And I was like, I still don't quite get it, but it looks a little cooler than VS Code. So I downloaded the SpaceMax distro and was fooling around with that for a while. I was like, okay, I don't really like this. Then someone told me to try out Doom and I downloaded that and I've never used any code editor since. Like, I can't Doom? VS Code. Doom Emacs, it's pretty nice. It's a configuration for Emacs that just makes everything clean. Eric, is this what Joel uses, another smart logic engineer? I don't know what specific version of Emacs he uses, but yeah, he's he's our our resident Emacs user. Yeah. When you said Doom, Chris, I just pictured it in my head from various pairing sessions with with Joel, where he's showing his screen, and I'm just like, why does your why does the top of your screen say Doom? Because it doesn't necessarily look like it's part of the window. It just looks like his screen is labeled Doom, and there's yep. <laughs> like no context around it. Do we know why it's called Doom? 
I don't know why the creator decided to call it Doom. It started from his own personal configuration file, and then he just decided to roll a extension. There's a little quote here in the introduction. So it's a story as old as time, a stubborn shell dwelling and melodramatic vimmer envious of the features of modern text editors spirals into despair before he succumbs to the dark side. This is his config. So it's probably like all of these vim ish things that go to Emacs are always like, there's like evil mode, which is vim in Emacs. And then I guess doom Emacs is sort of similar. And so it's just like a twist on the editor wars, I guess. Well, I'm just glad that you don't use the text editor that won't be named. Although you've actually already mentioned it. (laughs) Do you want to talk about what it was like for you getting started programming broadly? Because you you studied math in college, but did you know how to program before that? Did you learn how to program in your math program? My dad actually taught me to program many, many months ago. (laughs) It was like a pastime because he used to be a software engineer and he would code up in C and he used Vim. So it's my first experience with Vim. And uh, we would build up like very simple, hi, what's your name? How old are you? You can't drink yet. <laughs> very simple things. And then I, I kind of largely forgot about C and C++. And it wasn't until my sophomore year of college that a friend of mine was taking a Java class and I was just looking over her shoulder at it. I was like, what is this? And I could read some of it because of the, the C background. And I was just like, is this coding? And then I decided to take that same class the next semester and went through Java. I was just really confused all the time. I was like, what's this Static versus not static. Why is it telling me that I can't use this declaration? What does class mean? Like I had a bunch of questions. You had feelings about it? Eventually got answered, but I I didn't really understand all the moving parts. And there was a lot for me to kind of take in. But then I started taking more CS courses alongside my math courses. And I got more comfortable. But at that point, I'm still just coding in Python and Java. I got a job eventually uh, at a consulting company. And they are using Java to kind of build out insurance software. <laughs> and then this is the the pivotal point at which I think I really started to code when we had to build out the, the front end using Angular. And I'm just wondering like, why is there so much repetition in all of this? And I started asking around, I was like, how do we like reduce repetition? And then I was watching a YouTube video and found this video about Elm. And it unlocked all this functional stuff that I had no idea existed. And that's when I, I officially would call my like coding journey to begin. Because once I went into like the functional programming world, I just learned so many programming languages, got into programming language theory. Wild. <laughs> what is programming language theory? <laughs> sorry, sorry. I just have to tell you what just happened here. You were talking about languages. I was like, oh my gosh, this is a great opportunity to segue into programming language theory. And I'm like, Sunday, like, you should take this opportunity. Said, and she's like, I don't see where? The I don't see it. And then you literally mentioned it. You said the words. Yeah. And you literally mentioned it. You made the segue <laughs> for us. I hope we don't cut this out because it's a little bit of fun inside baseball. I'm having a lot of baseball metaphors today, huh? Isn't that your first one? No, I said something about knocking it out of the park earlier, which yeah. is something that only happens in baseball. 
All right. Well, we'll forgive you, Justice. Please tell us, Chris, about what did we just say? Programming language theory. I <laughs> Thank believe. you. Yeah. What What is that? We all know how to code, I presume, here. We know what basic assignments are, for loops, et cetera, and mapping and things like that. But if you had to create a programming language, would you know how to? I take a lot of pride in my ability to hack things together. So, you know, yeah. So, yeah, you could probably hack one together and get something analogous to brain. It would just be a ton of like, it would be a ton of case statements. But how do you construct a programming language that actually does something useful that's Turing complete, that has types, that is verified? Does it have to have types to be a complete? It doesn't have to have types, no. Turing complete, it just essentially, it means that your programming language satisfies satisfies a Turing machine that you can implement a Turing machine in your programming language or equivalently means that your programming language is mathematically equivalent to the lambda calculus or something like that. I've heard about the Turing test for AI, but that's my first time hearing Turing complete. Turing complete, it's the notion of what computation is. Can I ask you a question sort of around that? Because I'm a fan of Cal Newport who you probably have heard of if you're in the math and computer science world. And after reading him, I kind of got confused or maybe the lines were blurred. I don't want to say confused, but the lines were blurred between computer science and math. And I guess I'm just wondering where does, where does like applied math end and computer science begin? Going back to algebra, you know, this thing about collection of things and an operation on those things. The foundation of all of computer science is Boolean algebra, essentially, like this Boolean logic. Computer science is math. It's not really where does one thing begin and the other. It, it's all like the same thing. Programming, like when you're programming, you are writing proofs to propositions. You are doing math just in a different way. Okay. And then let's return to the programming language theory aspect of this, which is like what, okay, I, I need to build my own programming language. Like what, what are the constituent parts that I need to be considering or how do I deconstruct that problem? Exactly. So the first thing that you kind of have is a parser and that just reads your text and puts it into tokens for the compiler. Your next thing is like a tokenizer and I'm going to skip a bunch of the things in the middle. I'm going to talk about the parser. It takes your text and puts it into this like nice form for your compiler. Your compiler then takes this thing in a nice form and transforms it to machine code. The thing that you have to think about when creating your own programming language is what are these nice things that your parser needs to transform into? In other words, what are these expressions and what do they mean? Those are the steps. You make a, you write a parser, you write a compiler that uses these expressions and get translated to machine code and you have a programming language. Or you can write an interpreter that takes these expressions and translates them directly to their values or interprets them. Now you have an interpreter, like something like Python. Or you could have a transpiler that takes these expressions from maybe some other language and transforms it to some other language like JavaScript. And that's what Elm does. So could we write a transpiler to take all the world's Java code and, and turn it into a language that wasn't terrible? <laughs> you Radically. All right, Justice, go write it. Come back. Tell us how it went. Closure kind of does something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're still on the JVM, which is good. Just It's just going to have the semantics that Java has. 
Yeah, I don't think you're getting away from it too, but too too far at least. The semantics and syntax of closure in Java are completely different. It's just that going back to the compiler thing, closure compiles down to the JVM, the Java machine code. But the the actual expressions that you're dealing with are nothing like what you would see in Java. Although all Java code can be imported into valid closure. All Java can be do you say converted or compiled? Imported into imported. closure. Yeah. So your dreams could come true, Justice. So it's it's like uh, I guess the Elixir way of thinking about it is if Elixir is closure, Erlang is Java. Erlang is Java. Yeah. So you can use yes. both and either. But which sounds like a segue into talking about the Beam. Yeah. How do you like uh, working in Elixir, working with the Beam? You clearly have a really good understanding of different languages. So you get to experience the good parts and maybe talk a little bit about the things that you wish you could see too. I guess I really like working in Elixir because it's the one language I know how to actually get a web application up and running and in production. Um, (laughs) Things that I don't like about Elixir is I don't like it doesn't have types. I like the fact that it kind of brings in this lispy type of feeling to it with its metaprogramming. And I know Jose kind of brought that up when I interviewed him. It's like he got some inspiration from uh, Common Lisp, I believe. So I really like that. I kind of like the Ruby syntax that's almost built in. I like the abstractions they've done over Erlang, especially with the gen servers. It's really cool. Remember when one of my friends spun up a gen server and showed me how to do it and then showed me the equivalent like Erlang code for it. I was like, oh, cool. I really like the fact of concurrencies are just built into the language. It's very different from some of the other languages I had been exposed to prior to learning that Elixir existed or Beam languages in general. Can you remind me, your YouTube channel, I feel like when we were looking at it, there were a lot of Elm videos. Were there Elixir ones as well, or was it pretty math-based? You had some playlists. There are, I believe, two Elixir videos. One goes over a bug that we found in Elixir one time with the with macro. And then the other one goes over the with macro as it's supposed to work. I'm curious how you came up with the name Coding Cave. Is it a reference to Plato's cave? Because that's what I was basically wondering. No, it's nothing that deep. (laughs) I think it just sounded cool. I don't really think we had any deep thoughts about it like I did with my Twitter handle. (laughs) So what are your, everyone has, you know, career goals and personal goals, but starting YouTube channels, like a whole, the whole thing, or at least now it is, maybe it wasn't when you started it. Do you have some high level goals for what you'd like to achieve? Or are you just hanging out with your buddy and, and making videos and talking about math or programming? I think we want to make videos that can teach people like how to code as well as videos that can get more I guess, junior people to understand more complex things. It's funny saying that because I I am a more junior person. But I guess we want to give videos that talk about like more advanced things like using monoids and programming or continuations and, and things like that or talking about functional languages like Elixir and Elm. I will say that I think some just, you know, we've been chatting for 30 minutes and something I can already tell that you do very well is talking about high level concepts and breaking them down in a way that are fairly digestible. So there are plenty of videos out there on like how to make a web app in Elixir or something, but 
it would be really interesting to hear content around thought processes around how programming language works. Even a video on what you were just talking about. Like if you had to build your own programming language, what, what would that look like? That would be fascinating content. I'd love to learn more about how to think about approaching programming problems versus just how to solve a particular problem. I think one of my breakthroughs in programming was when I learned how to write or how to ask the right questions. And I, I definitely can tell you'd be good at describing that if you were interested in making that kind of content. Yeah, no, I'm, that sounds like it would be something I'm, I'm into. Actually, one of the videos that I have in my back mind is writing Elm in Elm. Uh, is that what we call metaprogramming? <laughs> It's called a meta circular evaluator. When you write a language in the language that you're going to evaluate with the language you wrote. A meta circular evaluator. Wow. These are big words. These are big words for me. When we say that there's magic in a language, I think that we mean that it's doing something inexplicable or miraculous. And I'm curious, what's your philosophical take on that from a programming language theory standpoint? And also what's your experience with it? I guess when I think magic around like programming languages, that's what we're talking. I, I guess I think about the magic behind list macros and all the crazy things you can do with that. But at the end of the day, everything in Lisp is just a list. <laughs> Something about that is magical. I, I think it's magical how when you write in Haskell, sometimes it can just feel like English. Like you can write Haskell on a board, add equals X plus Y. That's valid Haskell. Add X, Y equals X plus Y. Sorry, that's valid Haskell. Other things that are magical. When I can abstract something in a language that I didn't think I could do or I can't do in another language. And I guess that's something like concurrency in Elixir. It's very centrally abstracted that is very hard to abstract in other languages. The biggest piece of magic though at the end of the day is how fast I can get something running that can be pushed abroad. I do a lot of side projects for various people or friends. And I guess I used to do them with like Python, Flask and Node, but now I do most everything and Elixir and Phoenix because it's just, I can get authentication with POW very quickly. I can get all my database stuff rolled up. And something about that process is just very magical to me. It sounds like you have a very positive perspective on it, which is different from some of what we hear, which is like, like, oh, there's too much magic. I don't like not knowing what everything does. Do you see that it can be a problem sometimes? Oh, for sure. Definitely. Because I was, I was literally... At work today, uh, walking through a problem on something simple as migrations. And there was a macro that we built to handle like kind of data migrations. And I didn't really understand what was going on. And it was because of the macro I didn't know was there. So macros can be dangerous. And anything that is magical, I think there's like a quote around there about it being sufficiently advanced technology. I think that on one side, I'm really honing on macros for whatever reason right now. Like macros in any language can be really magical because they allow you some expressivity that you don't get. But with any magic can come fear and, and danger. I guess with any good magic, there's both like Vim and Emacs, right? 
Amazing. You actually just said something that made me realize we hadn't talked about it yet. We obviously found you from your Twitter and your YouTube channel, but you also mentioned that you work in Elixir at your day job. Do you want to talk a little bit about your work and, and what you do there? Sure. I guess I can do that. I am a software engineer at Corvus Insurance, a startup in Boston. We specifically are writing insurance and, and cyber and tech insurance. And we use Elixir and Elm to build out our crowbar, which is our internal tool that underwriters use to actually get the insurance served. Did you learn the bulk of your Elixir there or was it sort of a before or after adventure for you? Yeah. So I actually heard about Corvus insurance through the Elm Slack. And at that time, I had no knowledge of the Beam or any Beam languages. And I remember talking with Eric, who was like the VP engineering. He's like, yeah, we use Elixir here. And I was like, I don't know what that is. Of course, I didn't say that. So after I got off the phone with him from my initial phone screen, I was like, I got to go learn what Elixir is. Uh, and that's when I first started diving into the Beam and Erlang and and all of that jazz. So it definitely was a little bit like before and after learning Elixir for the job type of thing. But I, most of my practical Elixir knowledge came from Corvus just learning on the job. You're also a fan of spoken languages. We noticed on your resume, I think, that you have two languages under your belt. Was that correct? Is it more? Is it less? No, that's, that's correct. I would say my strongest language other than English is probably Mandarin right now. In addition to that, I can speak German and my Spanish is weakening. <laughs> mm -hmm. Use it or lose it, right? Yes. Do you, oh, no. Kong, Kong. <laughs> Do you happen to see, like a, we talked about the cross-section of math and programming. I'm wondering if you see a cross-section of spoken languages and programming languages as well. I wonder if you ask the same how would you create your own spoken language question if there are any overlaps there? I do think that they have to be related in some way, shape, or form. I haven't quite put to words how that relation exposes itself. I have noticed from like comparing Mandarin to German, for instance, that there's like an inherent reliance in German on like grammatical structure. And maybe that could be parallel to strongly typed programming languages. There's like this inherent reliance on the typing rules and on types. Whereas a language like Mandarin, Chinese, you can kind of get away with just kind of putting things together in whichever way you please. Sort of like in dynamically typed languages like Lisp and Python. I don't have anything further than that with the relation of them. I do think that being good at programming and learning a language share a lot of similarities, like memorizing new vocabulary and understanding like underlying structure. Can you talk a little bit about that language acquisition process in both programming languages and spoken languages? I'm curious if you've got strategies or tactics that have helped you to learn. I mean, it sounds like you speak several languages, you write several programming languages. How do you learn to do this? So for spoken languages, I have to say you have to have a need for it. And I guess that's true for actual programming languages too. And you have to use it a lot, which is true for programming languages. And I guess once you like you have a need for it and you're using it a lot, your brain just kind of does the rest for spoken languages. 
some languages that are more similar to others, like German and English, you may have an easier time because they rely on the same like underlying structure, uh, which for German and English is like that underlying grammar structure. But for like other languages like Chinese, uh, it's there's not going to be another language where a native English speaker to learn that because it's completely foreign and different. So, mm-hmm. how is my Chinese? I just spit at you earlier. I, I didn't recognize it as, as Mandarin. If that's Cantonese, then I don't know that. No, it was just, it, well, okay. How do you say I am a dinosaur in Mandarin? Because oh I'm pretty God. sure I've been walking around saying that to people in Chinese. <laughs> so, um, I don't have the vocabulary for dinosaur. Uh, it would be something along the lines of Washer Iga and then whatever dinosaur is. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't actually know what that is okay so i spent like a summer or like a, in china a while back and i like when you're there you, what you're saying is exactly right as far as spoken languages are concerned immersion is the the Key. hack to learning mm-hmm. languages but as soon as you leave you forget everything and the only thing i've remembered is this phrase whoa lo kong long which i think means i am a dinosaur maybe but it's a dialect yeah, Were you maybe. in a particular part of? Well, I might also just be butchering it now after much forgetfulness because it's tonal. So I'm, you know, hmm. I'm probably saying the wrong words entirely. <laughs> well, you're saying I something. I'm not sure what the Kong Kong was. Kong uh, Long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, you're so bad at this. You should. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. Hilarious. Well, it was definitely fun when we were like, researching for this episode to to see that you're so into programming languages but also spoken languages so i definitely was curious about that i do have opinions on the key to learning a new programming language though i think at the end of the day after learning a couple of them i think you just start with the function and how to do variable assignment if that's even a thing but I've noticed in most languages that I, I know now is that I just need to refresh myself on what a function looks like and how to apply it in that language. And then I can figure out the rest of the language because it just kind of falls out almost naturally. Programming languages also reuse a lot of the same syntax. So once you learn a couple of different ones, you pretty much have all of them already. Okay, I'm going to post the Google translation for this. And while you do that, I will say that's almost a hot take, Chris. I feel like to say like, once you know one, you know them all. But I can totally see that, though. I mean, it kind of breaks down when you're trying to learn APL or something. But what is APL? A programming language. That is literally the name of the programming language. All right. You know what? I Okay. Okay. <laughs> Someone's got to say it. That programmers are terrible at naming things. It, it's not that it's so hard to name things. It's that programmers are just bad at it, okay? <laughs> the hardest thing in computer science is naming things. No, you're just bad at it, and you keep naming stu- things. Freaking yet another markup <laughs> language, a programming language. Oh, I'm so funny and unhelpful in my names. Okay, Wait, so- is yet another markup language? Yeah. YAML. Yes. Oh, okay. I did not put that together. So, Chris, I just posted some uh, some Chinese in the chat. Can you check that out and pronounce it for me? <laughs> so that I- oh. I guess it is OC dinosaur. Whoa, shit, Kong Long. I remember the thing. I re- I walked around that big hole in in Chongqing, just sit down and be like, whoa, shit, Kong Long. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> funny. <laughs> and, but they love it. You know, they love Americans when you go out there and you just, I don't know, they're like, take a picture with me. Like, yes, <laughs> go, no problem. Got it. 
Yeah, I, I have lots. Actually, my final presentation uh, that I gave at East China Normal University, the last slide was just all the pictures that I have taken in China because they had never seen a foreigner before. <laughs> yeah. Oh, one day we'll get to maybe get back to uh, visiting other countries. So I want to wrap up here with just I want to talk about the beam. We know that you're kind of getting into Elixir and and the whole ecosystem might be sort of nudie, but I'm curious, like, are there things that you're getting to do in Elixir on the beam? Maybe you've played around with Gleam. Are there things that you've been getting into that you are excited about? I'm really thinking about this, and I, I think I've been putting a lot of my time recently and just learning how to use Elixir to build something. And I guess that really is exciting. I've made it past my point in other languages when it comes to actually building things. I think that's it. I haven't really dived into the beam. I've been preoccupied with other things. After my class ends, I probably will get more into Elixir and the beam and Erlang. I'm taking like a graduate course on like old camel right now <laughs> so i've been really busy <laughs> rock and roll well we'd like to give the guest the final word so this is your chance to plug anything you want shamelessly self-promote ask the audience to do ridiculous things or or not so ridiculous things but it's totally yours and so the floor is yours well, if you haven't already uh, checked out my interview with Jose Vili on Coding Cave, my YouTube channel, please go ahead and do that. You can follow me on Twitter if you're interested in more thoughts around programming language theory, monoids, and monads. That's at Black Euler. I think that's it. Awesome. Shea, shea, Chris Miller. Shea, shea. <laughs> I love this. Hey, thank you for joining us on Elixir Wizards. Before we close out the show, we'd like to share another quick mini feature interview with you. It's a brief segment where we showcase somebody from the community that's working at a company using Elixir in production, and we'll learn about how they're using Elixir. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the mini feature segment of Elixir Wizards. My name is Alex Hausend, and today we're speaking with Sydney Leatherwood, software developer at Semsi. Welcome to the podcast, Sydney. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I have to say, your last name is pretty cool, as far as last names go. Yeah, I definitely hear that a lot. I'm yeah. quite fond of it myself. <laughs> Never give it up. So just to dive right in, how did you find yourself being a software developer? What made you get into programming? I was never really scared of computers, but I was also never... I would never consider myself like a techie. As I kind of got older, I had friends who were kind of into programming and into developing, and I would go to them for kind of certain projects that I'd be working on or for advice. And then, you know, eventually one thing led to another and I was working on a project and I just decided to give it a shot trying to build it myself. So that was like a Craigslist scraper. That was my first, my first project. And so that was kind of my my first foray into development that was using Ruby and the Rails framework. And then kind of, I was hooked from there and I just wanted to learn more. So I just kind of dived deeper and kept peeling back the layers. That's awesome. Do you feel like using Elixir is kind of similar to using Ruby? Yeah, I think the 
ease of use, the readability is definitely Ruby-like. I feel like the biggest similarity, though, was the frameworks between kind of the Ruby Rails world and like the Elixir Phoenix world. The area where I could leverage my Ruby chops the most was working with the MVC framework. That is Phoenix. Yeah. How did you find yourself working in Elixir? Was it a job change or was it more personal project use? Yeah, it was a job change. I have a mentor and, you know, he exposed me to the concept of Elixir. I, I knew it existed. I knew that it was liked by Rubyists because of kind of the similarities between the frameworks and such. So I knew that was like a thing, you know, the, the Ruby developer that kind of switches to Elixir. You mentioned that you have a mentor. What has that been like for you in your career? Oh, it was great. It was great because, well, this, this mentor was like, uh, oh my God, he was, he's so intense because he was my best friend and I didn't know that he was as talented as he was in computer science. He, we kind of moved out to Los Angeles together from Ann Arbor. He just like pulled this skill set out of nowhere and I was just amazed. And so he was kind of the one who got me into like, I was into like WordPress sites and doing like affiliate marketing and link wheel sites. And like, this was an Amazon was like, wild wild west affiliate affiliate marketing was like so lucrative for no reason and and so he got me into that and he kind of really really excelled and took off from there and i kind of stopped there this was like 10 or so years ago i stopped there and he continued on and when we kind of got back to each other like wanting to kind of connect on a technology level he was like a superman and he, for some reason, was like addicted to wanting to help me learn. And he would spend so much time with me. I would code for 16 hours a day. And he would wake up in the middle of the night if I texted him and answer questions. And he'd call me. He was so excited that I was exci- as excited as I was. And, and like he was just like a nut that with the level of interest that he kind of gave to me and my desire to learn. So that was like indispensable. I imagine I could have done it without him, but I definitely wouldn't have stayed motivated. Like, you know, I was able to code for like 16, 17, 20 hours at a time because I knew that when I finally was up against the wall and like couldn't solve a problem that I I had a way out. So that was awesome. That's incredible. I think we all want mentors like that in, you know, either our personal or professional lives. And we don't always get mentors that are that dedicated and interested in our own growth. So that's amazing to hear that you've had somebody like that in your life. Exactly. Like I find myself trying to help other others as well. And I feel like so inadequate because I have this bar that he set and it's just so high. How did you find yourself at SEMSI? It was like a, a much needed move. I'd been in Los Angeles for 10 years. And I think that my current manager reached out to me and you know, we had some conversations and I immediately was was interested in everything that he was talking about. A big part of our application is robotic process automation. And like my first application was a scraper. So that was the kind of specific as- aspect of, of this company that kind of really, that I really liked. I really liked the idea of working professionally with RPA. And then, you know, we got to speaking and I learned a little bit about their stack and how it was Elixir. And I, I, you know, immediately like that didn't throw me off at all because I kind of was familiar with Elixir and my mentor had been pushing me to learn it just to learn it because he was really excited about the pattern matching and the whole OTP concept. And 
so as soon as as soon as my manager, who wasn't my manager then, obviously, but as soon as he started talking about Elixir, I was in. You know, I had been on Ruby solely Ruby uh, since I started developing, and you know, I was just ready to to try something different. And he made it sound very exciting. Yeah, could you give us a, a brief elevator pitch for what SimC does if you had to market it out? Yeah, so it's like comparative rating. So we're all familiar with like the ability to go like one of hundreds of websites and fill out one little short form and get quotes for car insurance or homeowners insurance and, and the like. So SEMC is like a play on words. It's there's an acronym and it's SEMCI, you know, SEMC kind of, and it's single entry multiple carrier interface. And so it's this idea that was kind of promised to insurance agents and agencies back in the day and it was this concept of like hey like we're going to allow you to have one form to get multiple kind of quotes from multiple carriers to do kind of coverage comparisons with your clients and whatnot and it was like a kind of a promise that never came to fruition because the insurance industry just wasn't ready for it they kind of had like lots of outdated technology and kind of when technology caught up to when the ability to kind of leverage technology to solve these insurance industry problems came around, these companies weren't, they weren't set up to be able to leverage that technology. So this kind of promise never came to fruition. So what we have done is provided agencies and carriers with the data analytics and the workflow that you would need to make it through a single form to get quotes for like multiple commercial lines of insurance. It's a challenge because you could imagine like if you want car insurance and you have a Toyota Prius, you simply enter the car and the year and the VIN number. And, you know, maybe there's like one has airbags or one has like leather seats, another doesn't or something, but it's generally the same car. With commercial insurance, you might have a restaurant. Well, what kind of restaurant? Is it fast food? Is it dining? Is it takeout? Is it a ghost type kitchen? Do you have grills on premise? There's all kinds of different types of businesses, different types of codes that go with those businesses, different types of classification systems that people have come up with to classify these businesses. Different carriers, different insurance providers use different classifications, and sometimes they have their own classifications. All these carriers are asking different questions. They might ask the same question in different ways. They might ask a question, and the question might have other questions that depend on the answer to that question. And you can see how if you're trying to submit an application to 10 different carriers across three different types of lines, like business owner policies, workers' comp policies, and commercial auto policies, you have a monumental task on your hands as far as like the, the workload, the form filling, and all that. So that's kind of what we tackle is the whole like data debacle that you have to kind of work your way through in order to make something like this happen. Also, the process that is, is like a new process, like what's the user interface or like how do you get a user to interact with something like this? So like we're also discovering that as we go and we're tweaking our, our processes and our forms. And so like that's kind of what we do. And that's where our value add is, I guess, on the agency side. There's also a value add on the the carrier, the insurance provider side, and we definitely offer a lot of value and a lot of extras that I just didn't mention for the carrier side. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty all-encompassing kind of comparative quoting platform. 
and I'm sorry, I know that wasn't an elevator pitch. That was like, <laughs> you know what? Nobody ever said that any type of insurance was going to be simple. So there you have it. Could you speak to some of the perks and challenges that you've seen in hiring an Elixir? Yeah. So from what I understand, I don't personally do the hiring, but from what I understand, the challenges obviously can be that there's not that many Elixir devs out, out there. So finding you know developers who are, are really motivated and interested in, in taking on something new and the challenges that come along with that, obviously, that is a big challenge. The perks, I'd say, would be that when we do find people that already know Elixir or have some exposure to it, it's typically because they've kind of taken their own initiative and looked into the language themselves or built personal projects with it. It's not, doesn't tend to be people who have prior work experience with the language. So that kind of is, is a perk in the sense that those are the kind of people that we're looking for, the ones who are self-motivated and inquisitive and always looking to, to learn new stuff and, and push the envelope of like what technology is available to them. Yeah. One of the things I've always really enjoyed about Elixir is that I feel like the, that the online resources and documentation are pretty robust. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, definitely. And I, I was a little left wanting a little bit coming from the Ruby community because their kind of developer community is so extensive. But kind of once I learned how to leverage the assets that are there for the Elixir community online and kind of learned my my discovery flow, my information discovery flow, I guess, I, I kind of really did start to appreciate the level of like activity and that there is in the Elixir community. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Christopher Miller, for joining us today. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic production. Today's hosts include myself, Justice Eepen, and my co-host, Sunday Mint. Our producer is Eric Ostrich, and our executive producer is Rose Burt. We get production and promotion assistance from Michelle McFadden and Ashley Stotts. Here at SmartLogic, we build custom web and mobile software. We're always looking to take on new projects in Elixir, Rails, React, Kubernetes, and React Native. If you need a piece of custom software built, hit us up. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Follow at SmartLogic on Twitter for news and episode announcements. You can also find elixir wizards on discord just head over to the podcast page to find the link and don't forget to check us out next week for more on beam magic